will be in Colossians chapter 3 tonight. Colossians chapter 3. We'll be primarily looking at verses 5 to 11, but we'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 17. So Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word does not wither, that it does not fade away like the grass nor the flower, but it stands and endures forever. Father, may we, as we look upon this passage tonight, Recognize that the old in us will one day pass away. And so, let it move and be moved upon our souls to put off this old man and to take hold of the new man that endureth forever. We ask this in your son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Clothing is very important in the Bible. It often represents one's standing or status. Think of kings or priests in their vestments, or even the poor sinner in sackcloth. The theme of clothing is found even at the very beginning of the biblical story. Adam was innocent and he had no need for clothing at first. But when he sinned, his clothing changed with his status before God. Remember that he gathered fig leaves to cover his guilt. And this clothing represents the sin and corruption that Adam's nature now possesses. It represents the same sin nature 
that you and all of us have hopefully shirked. But God promised the seed of the Redeemer. Though Adam had fallen, God promised renewal for him and his family. And this promise was represented in Adam's new clothing given from God. Coming to our passage tonight, Paul has demonstrated that Christ is indeed our life. We live in His resurrection life, and we now belong to His new heavenly realm, which will be consummated in glory. We have no need of the fig leaves that the false teachers were providing. Before our redemption, believers were of the old earthly realm of death, the realm of Adam's curse and corruption. In the old man, we were clothed in sin. But as those united to Christ's new man, we no longer bear Adam's rags. So hear this, brothers and sisters. Put off the old man because you are clothed in Christ. That's our main point for tonight. Put off the old man because you are clothed in Christ. In our passage, Paul says to put off the old man because one, sin does not clothe you. Two, division does not clothe you. And three, but the new man does clothe you. So, because sin does not clothe you, division does not clothe you, but the new man does clothe you. So for our first point, put off the old man because death does not clothe you. In verses 5 to 6, Paul shows that the sins of the old man brings God's wrath. Paul's command in verse 5 is rooted in his point made in verses 1 to 4. As we just read, the heavenly Christ is our life. And so we come to that command. Therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. I really like how the New American Standard puts it. Paul's command is to consider the members of your earthly body as dead. In verses 1-4, to Paul wanted the believers to live and to think as those who truly belong to the heavenly realm. So if we are to live according to the heavenly, then we must consider the earthly in us, our sin nature, as truly dead. This is Paul's point in Romans 6, is it not? So you also, must, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul then lists what is considered earthly in us, meaning what marks the old age in Adam. He lists four sins of a sexual nature, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, or lust. Across the canon of Scripture, Errant sexual activity was deeply tied to idolatry. Think of the imagery of, of Israel as a harlot wife or a harlot daughter going after other gods. We saw that in Ezekiel 16. And Paul culminates this list of sexual sins with greed, or better put, covetousness, which he expressly calls idolatry. Like sexual sins, coveting is related to idolatry deeply tied to it. For Paul, covetousness was the primal sin of the garden, as we see there in Romans 7. By coveting the fruit of the tree, Adam and Eve desired something other than God 
and His ways, which is ultimately what idolatry is at its root. Ultimately, all these sins include are, are ultimately focusing in on this idea of an idolatrous impulse. And these earthly impulses are the mark that one belongs to the old world corrupted in Adam. In Adam, man's desires have been distorted to worship creature, not creator. To desire the earthly things, not the heavenly. Is the impulse that ultimately says that I am the arbiter of the true, the good, the beautiful, not God. And in verse 7, Paul shows God's response to man's idolatrous impulses. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God will bring everlasting judgment upon the sons of Adam, upon the sons of disobedience, whose heart beat with sin. Because even the desire to sin is sin itself. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the children of wrath follow the course of this world, following the demonic spirit of disobedience, Satan himself, and carrying out the desires of his fallen nature. And this sad state began in the garden. Adam and Eve followed the lies of Satan. Satan promised a life of freedom from God's rule. But Adam and Eve's sinful desire dominated them and bound them. In Adam, our nature was clothed by that original sin. As we said a few weeks back, it is as a straitjacket upon our soul. As much as we like, we would love to be free, but it clings closer closer to us. In Adam, we follow that same idolatrous impulse. We follow Satan and sin, which leads to God's judgment of eternal death. But through our union with Christ's death, the impulse of the old man has been healed. That is Paul's main point here in Ephesians, or uh, excuse me, Colossians. If we had died with Christ, Colossians 3 verse 3, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. It's as he says in Romans 6, Therefore let let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make it obey its passions, because sin has no more dominion over you. That is the freedom that Christ has purchased for those who have faith in Him. Brothers and sisters, Paul's promise that the old man has been killed is not mere rhetorical fluff. Please hear that with me. Paul's promise, Paul's declaration that the old man is dead is not rhetorical fluff. Paul truly believes that the old man has died in Christ at this moment. Our sinful impulses no longer have a reigning or domineering influence over us. So our actual sins can be toppled. 
Sin can be defeated in your life. And sin, most surely, can be killed in Christ. Not merely theoretically, but actually. Because in Christ, the old man has been killed with his passions and its impulses. Brothers and sisters, we must take at face value Christ's promise and this command to put off the old man. When there is sin in our lives and we think upon this command, we can suddenly lessen the command's full force. And we typically do this by qualifying it with other truths from scriptures. I'm sure all of us here have probably said something along these lines. The old man is spiritually dead, yes, but we still have this body of flesh. We are not yet glorified. So, so we will never be perfect in this life. Well, yes, of course you will never be perfect in this life. But this does not mean that any sin ought to mark our life now. Any sin ought to mark our life now. We should strive towards absolute conformity to God's will in all our actions and in all our desires. We should strive to have no sin in our life now. Paul commands us to present even our not yet glorified bodies as instruments of righteousness, period. Instruments of righteousness, period. No qualification. Righteousness. Brothers, I highlight the force of these commands because the only alternative to them is bondage to sin. If we will not be slaves to righteousness, we will be slaves to sin. And there should be no assurance of salvation for the soul who refuses the freedom from sin that Christ has won at his death. Christ is a full Savior. When Christ saves men from sin's condemnation, He always saves men from sin's power as well. Men freed from sin will no longer obey sin as its master. So brothers and sisters, let us tremble at this threat and examine ourselves. Do you still gratify the flesh? Do you still act on those desires and impulses of the old man? Do not be fooled. Christ will look upon those who let sin reign in their life, those who are clothed in sin, and say to them, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And for the unbeliever here, and children, I do think of you. You are not too young to hear this. So please give me your ear and your eyes. No matter how small some sin may seem to you, even the desire towards sin is high treason against God. It is a declaration that you despise God. Friend, you must realize that God's wrath is coming for you. Maybe you have some desire or a habit that you want no one to know about. And you may even feel shame or disgust for it. 
You can't imagine the consequences if anyone were to find out. Dear friend, God sees. Nothing is hidden from God. Your concern should not be what your friends or your family may think, but what the holy God sees in your heart. In His holy justice, our God will cast you into the lake of fire to cleanse Himself from you. So brothers and sisters, friends who do not know Christ, whether you profess Jesus or not, anyone who is caught in sin, who lets sin reign in them, you must know that there is freedom to be found. Both from the wrath of God and sin's power over you. By faith in Christ, God cleanses sinners as we saw this day, forgiving their iniquities. As our substitute, Christ satisfied the justice of God against sins once for all. And in Christ, if it is a true saving faith, the old man of sin was crucified with Him. Sin no longer is your master, but Christ is. You can have freedom from sin today. Are you tired of going back to that sin that brings shame and frustration to your soul? Then receive the true freedom that is found in Christ. Believe upon this Christ. Rest in His promise of justification. Rest in His promise of salvation from your sin. Repent of your sins. And the old man will stay dead in the ground. So then, if we have truly died with Christ, we have, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sin's power that raged against God has been defeated by the Almighty Christ. And this reality extends to God's people. This brings us to our second point. Put off the old man because division does not clothe you. In verses 7 to 9, Paul shows that our call to put off sin applies to the broader social sins, primarily the church, primarily in the church. In verse 7, Paul continues his reference to gross sexual sins, covetousness, and idolatry. For example, our conversion involved a decisive, radical break with such notable sins, such big sins. In the old man, we walked in such sins. We lived in such sins. And the past tense underscores how such sin truly belongs to the old age, to the old man. We once walked when we were living in them. But in verse 8, Paul focuses on those who now belong to Christ in His new heavenly realm. In verse 8, Paul focuses primarily on what Christ has purchased. The believer must lay aside both the obvious sins and the overlooked sins as well. All sins are to be removed from the Christians. Not just the big sins of verse 5, but the smaller ones of verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. All of these are sins related to broader social relationships. Like sexual sins and coveting, 
These sins, in verse 8, wound and break bonds that God brought together. Primarily, in Paul's mind, our Christian friendship and brotherhood. In context, Paul is thinking of the church broadly and the various relationships within the community of faith. Husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. Also, these sins in verse 8 act as a foil to what we will see next week. They are the opposite of the harmony and the love that marks God's people. Simply put, anger and sins of the mouth are antithetical to what it means to be a good church member, no matter your relationship to another in the church. And lastly, Paul commands the Colossians not to lie to one another in verse 9a. The sin seems like it's randomly added on to verse 8. But there may be a good reason it is awkwardly set apart from the rest. Remember that the bad guys in Colossians are the false teachers, right? Part of their lives was their insistence to live as Jews, good Jews. And these lies disrupted the unity of the church by parting oneself along ethnic and cultural lines. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that there are no cultural or, or ethnic, ethnic lines that ultimately define those in Jesus. All that matters is our common identity in Christ. So all sins, big and small, must be laid aside. But Paul highlights the sins of division, especially for those who are united to Christ. Going back to the garden... We see how easily sin divided the first covenant people. When Adam fell, the Lord came to question Adam. And Adam scrambles for an answer, right? The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Rather than owning his failure, Adam let anger and malice break his relationship with his wife even further. He slandered his wife to alleviate his own failure. He even blamed God for giving her to him, even though it was his responsibility to rebuke the lies of Satan and instruct his wife. And he distanced himself from his wife to make his outcome better. In this fallen world, this kind of distorted relationship, this broken relationship, is repeated more than just in our marriages. It's found in our families, our friendships, our workplace, and even in the public life. These sins of division clothe all of our human existence. But as Paul argues, the sins of division should not clothe redeemed humanity, meaning the church. Brothers and sisters, the church is the first fruits of God's new creation. The vision belongs to the old man, but love and unity belong to the new. So we put off the old man because division no longer marks us, period. It is antithetical to our common union with Jesus. We are to be a people marked by the love that God has redeemed us to. But let us be honest, this isn't always the case, is it? 
All of us can be pretty petty with one another. We can think the worst of one another. We can assign motives to one another that are unfair or simply untrue. But brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Hear the sober words from John. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother as this, he is a liar. He is a liar. He is a liar. This commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we profess Christ, but disdain or dismiss a brother in Christ, we show that we are a hypocrite. These sins may seem small in comparison to others. But in the church, your love or your lack of love is the real litmus test of whether we belong to God's redeemed humanity, whether we truly belong to Christ or not. Conflict and disagreement will come up in the life of the church. We know this because Paul talks about it a lot in his letters. And we know it by experience. So here are three quick things to keep in mind when disagreement comes to the church. Brothers and sisters, first, don't overblow the situation. Disagreement on issues, even important issues, is not necessarily a sign of disunity. Some issues are a matter of conscience. Some people are going to see things differently than we would. It would be great that all of us were in lockstep on our theological convictions. But even in this room, and I know it for a fact, even in this room, I know there is a great diversity of opinions on what the Bible addresses, what it really means. Yes, some of our disagreements may come from one party or both, not being, or, or of ultimately being ignorant of what the Scriptures say. One may think that the other person is lacking, but the other person is doing it also. So we should recognize that there is one truth, yes, according to the Scriptures. And we should seek for more unity in this regard. We should all be the people of the book and find our common convictions there. But hear this. Our love for one another when it comes to these issues, should never be on the line. This is harder. This is hard. And though it's hard, you can love and have affections for those you disagree with. And if you think I'm wrong, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> Second, when you disagree on an issue, resist the temptation to silo off from one another. The words groupthink and echo chamber are common today for good reason. And this is where sin can go unnoticed and unchecked if we are not careful. You may not outwardly bite at one another in the church, but what are you doing in the secret? Are you harboring ill will? 
Does resentment come to mind when you think of someone in the church? Are you scoffing at others and their beliefs? Brothers, this is gossip and it destroys Christ's church. Get over yourself and love your neighbor. Love your brother. And third, if your disagreement arises to the point of conflict and sin against one another, then Christ has instructed us how to address it. In Matthew 18, he gives us guidelines on how to reconcile. But the simplified version is this. Go and talk with your brother about your issue. You may not come to agreement on that issue that you might have beef with. That's fine. That is okay. You may not come to an agreement on that issue, but you can always recognize where sin has been at play, especially in your heart. Don't be too proud to admit fault. By denying yourself in this way, you are doing more than laying aside the old man. You're putting on love. Brothers and sisters, Christ has restored fallen humanity into a unified family. It was such an honor today that I got to be with three new ladies coming into the church. They felt loved. That is an immense blessing I wish you could all experience. Put off the old man and love one another. So then, the church is to put off the old man, both his idolatrous impulses and his divisive spirit. But now Paul shows us why we must put off the old man. This brings us to our third point. Put off the old man because the new man clothes you. In verses 9b to 11, Paul gives the grounds, gives the grounds of our renewal in Christ as the reason for our putting off the old man. So in verse 9, Paul is speaking of the sin of lying. But we, as we will see, Paul means to include all the sins in verses 5 and 8 as well. In 9b, Paul gives the formal reason for, for why we no longer live in sin. And I love how simple and plain a reality is. We no longer live in sin because we have put off the old man with his practices. We put it off. As we said before, the old man was crucified with Christ. Sin's power has lost its grip upon us. And Paul pushes this thought into verse 10. We no longer live in sin because we have put on the new man. By faith and union with Christ, we live in His resurrection life. That is our reality right now. The corrupted garments of Adam have been stripped away and we have received Christ's robes of renewal. See how Paul describes our life in the new man. We are being renewed. We are the passive object in this restoration project. Remember, Adam's coverings of guilt were made by his own hands, right? But God, in his grace, went to Adam and he gave Adam new clothing so that he could come before God properly. And so, like restored Adam, Christ's new humanity are recipients of restoration. We do not work for it. And notice what the believers are renewed in. We are renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Again, I say this again, this is not rhetorical fluff. 
Adam was made in the image of God. But he was deceived, right? His knowledge was corrupted and his image was marred. But Christ's renewal reverses this. We are no longer deceived by Satan's lies because we have the knowledge of Christ who has come to us, who is the true image of God. By union with Him, we are being renewed after His image, growing and maturing into the life He has secured for us. Adam did not form and create himself there in the garden. And neither can we in our redemption. God is both our sovereign creator and redeemer. And in verse 11, Paul shows that this reversal is for all men regardless of their social or cultural backgrounds. We see there in verse 11, these great antithesis between one another, Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. These distinctions ultimately belong to the old age and will ultimately fade away with the arrival of the new It is Christ who is all and in all. Meaning that He exhausts all of what it means to be the new creation. Not our backgrounds or our culture. What a radical message that is for today. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, there is a new humanity. In Christ, there is a new humanity. So do you see how glorious this passage is? In Christ, the last Adam, we are being renewed into a new Adamic community. Christ is renewing us in His image to fulfill what Adam failed to do with his progeny. Christ is renewing in us His image to fulfill what Adam failed to do with his progeny. What a marvelous thought that is. And here's what I mean by it. As you can plainly see, our passage uses language of clothing, put off, lay aside, put on, as in a garment. And this language is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's priests and their duties. The the Levitical priests would put on clean and priestly garments to serve before the Holy of Holies where God was, whereas they would typically serve in dirtier or plainer clothes for their other duties. And so likewise, Adam was originally to serve as a priest in God's temple garden, Adam and his progeny were to serve and spread the glory of God across the earth as they multiplied and filled the earth. But in his corrupted nature, in his stained garments, Adam could not fulfill his priestly duty. But Christ did. And when we are clothed in that last Adam, we are now able to fulfill our original purpose to glorify God. We can spread the glory of cross of God as Christ's new humanity. That is a stupendous and glorious thought. Brothers and sisters, look at one another. Oh, stop it. Look at one another. <laughs> Christ's new humanity. Brothers and sisters, Adam failed in his duty. Rather than spreads God's glory through his unified progeny made in his image, 
Adam spread idolaters who divided across the earth there at the Tower of Babel. But Christ reverses Adam's pollution through his gospel proclamation. We have a gospel that can actually change profane pagans to holy priests. We have a gospel that a new redeemed humanity can be formed from this broken and divided world. Brothers and sisters, we have a gospel that can actually change the world. That is what we have. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know what I like to say. Can I get an amen? All right. And this gospel is made manifest in all its glory by simply putting off the old man. There is no better reason to rid ourselves of sin because God's glory is all the reason the saints need. So let God's glory be a catalyst for you to deny those sins that we have pinpointed tonight. Brothers, do you struggle with a besetting sin? Do you struggle to love someone in the church? Then meditate on the cosmic glory of God and see how petty and weak that sin becomes. Oh, God's glory is the catalyst for our sanctification. God's displeasure of our sinful impulses should be enough for us to shirk whatever sin clings so close. Yes, but God's glory is, far, is a far better reason to put off the old man in his practices. There is nothing more comforting than knowing that your struggles with sin is not pointless. Are there sinful addictions in your life that you cannot seem to conquer or put to death? Maybe you rightfully fear God's judgment, but you still can't seem to rid yourself of Satan's strongholds in your life. But brothers and sisters, there is no better strength found other than God's glory. When your soul is captivated by God's graces and riches, when your mind is filled with the fervor of heaven, and when your heart beats with the triumph of Christ over sin, Satan, and death, Oh, the old man trembles. You can put that sin to death because God's glory is a sin killer. So put off the old man in that grave because God's glory has won the victory in Christ. And for that soul who finds it hard to love, for that soul who is so prone to division, see the glory of God that is found in your love for one another. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of those whom he previously, who were previously divided, who have come together as the church of Christ. He says that God has brought us together so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, oh, hear this, brothers and sisters. What we do here the life that we have, it is no small thing. It is no small matter. Your unity in Christ, your love for one another, it proclaims the wisdom of God to the satanic whore that once bound us. It says to Satan and his demons, you lose, God's glory has won. Your lies that divided have been broken by the truth of the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, every time you truly love, 
that you have affection for, even those that you're not naturally prone to or have been hurt by, every time that you deny yourself and love that brother for God's glory, you spit in Satan's face to God's glory. Amen. Oh, let me close with this quick word. Put off the old man. Kill that sin and love your brothers and sisters because you are God's new man in Christ. To Him be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do not leave us in the misery of our sins, but You actually crucified Him in Christ. Father, help us to put off the old man, letting no sin bear its mark upon us, for we want to be known, not as people of sin, but of righteousness and holiness. Lord, let these rebukes and these trembles make us threaten and quake in our soul. But Lord, give us the comfort of Christ's cross, knowing that if we have faith in Him, that the old man has died and he will stay dead. Oh, Father, You have created us as a new humanity to spread Your glory. And may that glory captivate our mind's eyes. Let Christ triumph over the grave catapult us to further holiness. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us to put off the old man in order that we might put on the new. We ask this, Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.